Friday, it's 11 o'clock and it can only mean one thing. Welcome to this week's IndieLive.Radio Daytime Show. And we have two great guests on the show for you today. First of all, you'll be hearing from Tony Graham, who's a long-serving SNP activist and has done a recent series of presentations to the SNP membership on Both Votes SNP and you'll be hearing more from Tony later. Also in our show you'll hear from another really interesting guest too and that is Frank McGrorty, uh, also known by his DJ name of Frankie Boy and Frank um, is a very interesting person who has done all sorts of things in his life. He's a published author he um was a red coat famously a red coat at Butlins and some of his books are about that so you'll be hearing from Tony Graham and Frank McGrorty later on in the show Um, before we go on to that I'd just like to give you a heads up for a special edition of the show that we're doing next week Marlene Halliday and I Valerie Gold um, the daytime show special edition next Friday which is the 5th of March we are going to be doing a special probably an extended edition of the daytime show for International Women's Day and that show will be repeated on Monday the 8th of March which is also uh, the actual day of International Women's Day and we're going to be featuring a whole selection of really interesting women Um, some of them are well known some of them are not so well known but all who all have something original and interesting to say about the theme of this year's International Women's Day which is Choose to Challenge. Some of the people who will be appearing are Leslie Riddich, Nigit Riaz, Alison Thulis, Ruth Wishart, Kirsty Hughes, Rosa Salee, Agnes Tolmy, Shona Craven, Michelle Thompson, Isabel Lindsay. These are just a few. Uh, so we have veteran CND campaigners, we have human rights campaigners, we have um, journalists, politicians, a real um, cornucopia of women's voices for you. So tune in for that. That'll be next um, Friday at 11. Meanwhile, please continue listening to hear from our guests today, Tony Graham and Frank McGrorty. Good morning. It's Friday, it's 11 o'clock and it's a daytime show and I'm uh, sitting, well not with Val, but I'm sitting in a Zoom meeting with uh, Val. Good morning Val, how are you doing this morning? I'm here, very well, thank you. That's great and we have a guest with us this morning, Tony Graham. Tony, you doing okay? Yeah, yeah, surviving in these strange times. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully we're going to be able to wend our way out of these strange times over the next few months. That would be that would be great. So, Tony, so you know, contact you to ask if you would come on the show as a guest. I know you've been involving running, you know, campaigns for for a long time. I think you've got a bit of a mathematics background. 
And more recently, you've been um, you've been involved in online meetings where you 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 present the facts and the figures about how the list vote works and the pros and cons of having both votes for SNP or splitting vote for SNP and something else. So. Um, you, I know you've been doing it for, um, for 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 the last few weeks. What brought you up to create this presentation? What made you think about doing this? Uh, it's a, a really good question, Marlene. I was reading principally in the National, but also um, quite a few posts on social media. And they were, I thought, these are really misleading people. You know, um, the, the whole uh, premise that they're pushing is actually misleading. And I started to worry that a lot of people would follow it and that uh, our wonderful chance to get independence might slip from our grasp and we'll shoot ourselves in the foot. Lots of metaphors in there, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's almost ours to throw away. And I feel that we're throwing it away. And I... I also felt that the SNP HQ, they were preoccupied with a number of other things, internal wrangles and stuff like that, and they've taken the eye off the ball. So I just started thinking through to myself, debating with others, and then I thought, you know, I could do a better explanation of this. And others said to me, yeah, yeah, you've explained that really well. We understand it now, so that's what really drove me to it. it was just to explain things in a simple manner, but particularly the maths of the system and the politics of the whole decision. So that's the background. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Have you, have you are you pleased with how it's been going? The, the meetings that you've uh, done. It's been incredible. Um, <laughs> Um, over a thousand people attended the online presentations and have also been downloaded a lot of times now. I'm inundated with friend requests and I'll say to your viewers, I, I can't accept them. It's just too many. <laughs> My Facebook would choke up. So I, I, I'm sorry about that to people who sent me friend requests. I just can't, can't add them all in. My Facebook is mostly for my family, yeah, yeah. children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And actually, this is what I'm campaigning for. So, yeah, the, it's astonishing. The, <laughs> I was logged on to Facebook once and I saw a conversation and somebody uh, posted, you really want to see this presentation by this guy, Tony Graham? <laughs> He's dead boring. <laughs> it's so informative. And I thought... Never read your own <laughs> reviews. Could I butt in there, Tony, and say I would have to take exception with that because I was, I attended uh, the Zoom, uh, the Glasgow Zoom uh, with Stacey Bradley, the National Organisational Convener, and yourself, and I didn't think it was boring at all because it can be quite dry. Some of these presentations, I thought you you presented it in a very um, understandable and clear way. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
So can I ask you then, uh, Tony, what your own background is, you know, just for a bit of, you talked about the background to, you know, Marlene asked you about the background of coming to uh, do these presentations. I just wondered, you know, have you always been a member of the SNP? Uh, what, you know, did Mar Marlene said you had a maths background. So, you know, what's your backstory? Well, my backstory, many, many backstories, but summing it up, right, um, I was a member of the Labour Party for over 30 years mm. and uh, actually, now don't tell any of your listeners this, <laughs> this is a secret between us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually an election agent for George Fowkes, so I have a big penalty on my head. I have to try and, uh, uh, I have to try and work out that you know, it's it's pay penance for that. I'm this guilt. You have to pay <laughs> <it back. laughs> Imagine being an election agent for George Fowkes. But one of the things was back in the seventies, when I uh, started campaigning for the Labour Party, because I was a socialist, and I am a socialist. And at that stage, I mistakenly thought this is a part path to a fairer, you know, socialist country, and all the things I believe in. Completely mistaken, I know that now, but that was back then. But the Labour Party were exceptionally good at running elections at that time. They invented the rating system and things like that. So they trained me up in campaigning techniques. And of course, I've grown and learned from that as well through the years, because I love to learn new things. Read books about it, studied it. I did a little bit of politics at uni and also did pure maths, right, statistics. So there's where the math starts to come in as well. And my career has always been in IT. And, you know, mathematics came into a lot of it, including project planning and things like that. Yeah. And I bring all that together. So uh, I lived in the south of England for a long time. And there wasn't much point in being a member of the SNP in Bournemouth, actually. You know, <laughs> It wasn't exactly a Scottish independence hotbed. But no. I moved up to Scotland in 99, and my sister, Christine Graham, MSP, stood uh, for the Scottish Parliament. I started running her campaign, oh. and I joined the SNP on my move back, because it was the obvious thing yeah. to do. Yeah. And I've been hopping about the country lots of times, for by-elections things since then and learning from every by-election I've gone to. I mean, Dundee in particular, I learned so much from our parties in Dundee and I've brought this to what I've been doing also. I'm 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 guessing I'm guessing, but uh, Tony, that Bournemouth wasn't much of a hotbed for the Labour Party either. <laughs> I <laughs> No, but um, I was incredibly um, involved in the anti-poll tax campaign. Uh -huh. And I can tell you an enormous story about that <laughs> as well, because we sent five coaches to, to the big demo in London, you know. And very briefly, because it is quite entertaining, I, I, I said to my wife, we were about to uh, go on a wee holiday uh, to France, I said, this is terrible, poll tax. They don't know what's coming down here. It's in Scotland. So I'll just write a letter to the papers which said, if you want to oppose it, write to me 
and we'll do something about this. And when we got back two weeks later, I couldn't open my front door for letters. <laughs> <laughs> and we started the East Dorset Anti-Poll Tax Union, wow. which goodness. 5,000 members. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that makes that, that kind of makes up for a George Folks, nearly. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I was just going to ask back to the both votes SNP thing, which, as you say, has been much um, listened to and attended and paid attention to on the internet and also when people have attended Zooms. Um, I was just wondering, um, do you think, I mean, there is some dubiety about that, um, you know, and I think that one of the catchphrases that a lot of these smaller parties use, and the Green Party as well, and I'd like you to give you the opportunity to dispel that, because I'm sure from your point of view and from a lot of people in the SNP's point of view, it is a myth. This idea that a vote for the SNP on the regional list, the second vote, is what they call a wasted vote. So what would you say to shoot that down in flames, Tony? Uh, there's there's so much I could do, and my, my people who really want to know about this should tune in to my, my um, little online things by region, actually, on how it works. Uh, first of all, uh, what's really important is to say, what do we want? Do we want to eliminate or reduce the number of unionist MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, or do we want independence? You know, because a lot of the fixation is, let's, let's get more indie MSPs and less unionists. I want, personally, I want independence. So I start from that point of view and I say, how can I get there? What's the best route to get independence? And of course, uh, the in 2011, after the election, then the gold standard was set, the SNP got a majority. And when you've got a majority, you've got a le an electoral mandate. That's from the electorate. You've, they've given you a majority. And that makes it extremely difficult for any Westminster government to deny you the right to hold that referendum because you then are elected by the people of Scotland on a majority. But of course, in 2016, we didn't get that majority. So and I thought, why didn't we get that majority? And how can we get that back again? And how can we get independence? So I'm starting not from eliminating unionist MSPs, but getting independence by the best method possible and the, the best way to go down it. So working through that process brought me to, you actually need regional list MSPs to get majority. There's no doubt about that. And so I looked back over the claims and counterclaims of like, uh, a rise and solidarity and the Greens who said that every election the SNP are going to take a whole majority just on constituency seats alone. The polls are so great. Uh -huh. Going to win all these seats. They don't need less seats, so don't waste your votes on them. And I thought, but that didn't happen. In 2011, when we got the majority, we won 16 with seats to get us that majority. But in 2016, we lost 12 of them. 
and that denied us a majority. And the reason we lost those was our share of the vote went down by 2.3% in the list. It went up on the constituencies, but it went down in the list. And the green vote share of the vote went up by exactly the same amount as ours went down. And I thought, you know, the second vote green campaign actually denied a lot of SNP list seats. So let's see how we can explain this to people, how the mechanism works, based on the important principle that we actually want independence, and the way to get independence is an SNP majority government. Does that start you off there? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really comprehensive an answer. Yeah, and I was, um, I've heard you put it that, um, you know, one way of uh, talking about it to people is to, you know, put over the idea that, that on one day, on, on the election, holiday election day, there are two elections happening. They're happening on the same day. And obviously, it's one for the constituency uh, representatives and then the other ones for the list uh, votes. So could you say a, a little bit about, you know, what you mean uh, when, when you say that, that there's two elections happening on the same day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because in, a, in my view, the actual list vote is actually more important than the constituency vote, yeah. because I view that as actually your vote to elect your government. And uh, when people ask me how to explain it to others, I say, if you want to elect Nicola Sturgeon to head a government, an SNP government, that's what your list vote's for. Your constituency vote is for your constituency MSP. But your list vote is to elect your government. And it's really important that. And for us who are looking at independence and how we view it, we can't guarantee or count the number of constituencies we'll get. And when we know that back in 2016, when we track the opinion polls, and I mentioned that earlier on, they peaked at 60% yeah. just months before the election. But by the time the election came, they dropped 13%, both on the constituency and the list. Now, we haven't actually reached the peaks of the opinion polls in the current run-up to the election that we did in 2016. So we're not in quite a strong position as we were then. And if the polls drop, as in the run-up to the election, and we must expect that because the unionist media will fire every dirty story it can at the independence campaign, at Nicholas Sturgeon. They will use everything they can to destroy our, as our arguments. Then we must expect polls to drop. Uh -huh. And that says to you, I can't count on what the opinion polls are currently saying to reflect what happens at an actual election. So the result is clearly going to be different in some way or another. Where does the LISC vote come in? It's your insurance policy to make sure you get that majority. And that's happened every election. Now, if you go back right to this, the first Scottish Parliament elections, um, in 1999 and so on, you find that the SNP used the list vote very effectively 
first of all to become the largest opposition, then to become a minority government in 2007, and then become a majority government in 2011, and of course get a referendum, right? I want to get us into that position again so that we can get that referendum. Yeah, yeah. So something I wanted to ask about... um, uh, So, again, I was struck watching your presentation when, you know, you, you do say, I think you said more than once in it, but you know, you sort of say that it, what's important is the share of the list vote relative to other parties. It's not the absolute numbers. So it's a yes. share of the list vote. So that, that that's the one thing, if you could say a wee bit, wee bit about that. But also that fluctuations in the list vote quite small fluctuations can bring about quite big changes in the final allocation of of seats. So I I don't know, is it possible to say a little bit about that without without having a blackboard and chalk, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. And I try not to be too geek like about it. <laughs> so I practice it on my wife, my neighbours, things oh, like right. that. <laughs> you know, and they all run and hide from me. Yes, it's true. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, uh, the the whistle. When when I hear some of the 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 new trying to start up indie parties, say the SNP would need twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand votes to get a seat. I go, that's just mathematically. Incorrect, because the way the actual votes are allocated, they take into account, yes, the number of constituencies each you've won. They also take into account the number of votes you got, but they also take into account the number of votes the other parties got and the overall turnout. In other words, your share of the vote, because you have to take into account your vote in relation to the other parties' votes right. at the same time. You cannot look at just one vote individually. And I explain this by saying that, let's just take um, Glasgow for an example, you know, and as an Edinburgh person, I love to take Glasgow for an example. <laughs> right? And let's take Glasgow for an example where the SNP got, you know, so many hundred thousand votes, say, right? And the and the other parties got so many votes each, and the SNP didn't actually win in any list seat. Now, what would happen, just for an example, and this is off the wall, but there we are, the SNP vote remained exactly the same, but the other parties' votes all, let's say, halved, right? It's ridiculous, but just say that, just to illustrate the mathematical point that would mean that their share of the votes all reduced and ours massively increased. And that would trigger the winning of multiple list seats. So it's not your SNP vote on its own that counts towards counting list seats. It's in relation to all the others. And in relation to the others, that's called the the share of the vote. It's crucial that people understand that. And I really don't like when people put up charts with hundred thousands, you know, spreadsheets of all the rest of it, 
and people look at it and they think, I just see big numbers. I'll have to assume this is right because they're battling me with big numbers. And it's it's really um, a slightly deceitful way to present it. Mm. You know, they must, they should explain that it depends on the share of the vote, basically, yeah. Yeah. right? The way the DeHunt system calculates, it is effectively working on the share of the vote. Right. Now, you asked me about small fluctuations, yes, and you're absolutely right. When you're um, the top of the food chain there, as the SNP is on the list, with the most votes, small fluctuations in the share of the vote, and I'm saying share of the vote, they make a big difference in the number of seats that are allocated. So the 2.3% reduction in the SNP share of the vote between 2011 and 2016 accounted partially for a loss of 12 seats. We gained six on the constituency, but we lost 12 on the list. Now, down at the bottom, the, the bottom ranking party to get um, a significant number of seats was, of course, the Greens, right? Now, they only got 6.6% of the vote in the Scottish Parliament election. They had an increase of 2.2% from 2011, almost exactly the same as the loss of the SNP. And that just got them four extra seats. So they get four extra seats for an increase of 22 we lose 12 for a decrease of 2.3. There's a multiplier effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So if you want to boost, obviously, if you want to boost, you know, the number of seats you win, you do it to the SNP, you increase your share of the vote. It's the easiest way to get more seats. Yeah. <laughs> and, yep. and can I ask you then what your view is on I mean, you mentioned earlier in the last election, last Holyrood election 2016, small parties like RISE, who seem to have kind of disappeared, but we do have these other small parties that um, have emerged, like the Independence for Scotland Party and what was going to be the Alliance for Independence. I think they're now called Action for Independence. But it seems to me that you know they've got these you were talking about charts and they, they produce a lot of these charts you know with um how many votes they could get and how many msps but it, it seems and they're only standing on the list not in the constituency but it seems to me that you know as a sort of an outside observer because i'm not in those in any of those parties that they would have to get you know a really high level of uh, votes, I think more than 5% before they could make any impact. And the fact that there are quite a few of them means that it's maybe not terribly realistic because small parties, small new parties, take a while to get any public recognition or impact. I mean, sorry, I can answer my own question. <laughs> I'll go make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Mar Marley can always edit that bit out later, or I can. <laughs> okay, Tony, can I ask you what your view is of parties like the Independence for Scotland Party and a Action for Independence? How do you see them fitting into this 
picture. You know, in a way, I can understand the existence of some because people get yeah. frustrated. Yeah. And especially when we're locked up in COVID and you can't do the normal campaigning you would do, you know, you start to go, right, I need to do something, right? And I think a fair bit of it is attributed to that. But history tells us to make a breakthrough, you need to get more than 5% of the list vote. And the more multiple small parties you are, you know, it's, it's slicing up and splitting that list vote even more and more. Um, I think it was Professor John Curtis who said that small new parties in Scotland, they will struggle to make any breakthrough to get any percentage or any MSPs at all. And Rise, I think, from memory, got 0.6% after two elections they'd campaigned in. And the Scottish Solidarity got 0.5%. The Greens only got 6.6% of the list vote in 2016. And they've been campaigning for every Scottish Parliament election. They have a big organisation. They have funds, they have members. It's very difficult for small parties to get a breakthrough. But here's the crucial thing, and this is this really worries me, right? Um, these small parties, they probably will take a few percentage of the vote. Not enough to get an MSP, but they will take a few percentage of the list vote. And that's got to come from the SNP and a bit from the Greens, right? That's where it'll come from. They're not targeting any other party. They're mostly targeting the SNP vote. And what happens if the SNP doesn't win these predicted super constituency things and they, like 2011, we rely on uh, list seats to get a majority? What happens if these list votes are taken from the SNP, given to small indie parties, who don't get near the breakthrough limit, these are real wasted votes. And what could happen, and this is the worrying bit, is that with that reduction of SNP and Green MSPs, you could be letting unionists in. And the SNP list vote currently in the polls, and it's, you know, I think it's going to drop as we get to election, it's not very high. It's not looking that strong. Now, we could end up with a unionist parliament if we manage to split the list vote enough ways. Would and that, that is a big worry because we could kiss the pendants goodbye. Be horrendous, wouldn't it? I'm sorry to be depressing like that. No, I'm really no. worried about this. No, it's realistic. I mean, do you think, I mean, yeah, you could see it like a, a unionist majority, but would the Labour Party really hitch their flag to the Tory, you know, one? I mean, they're in big, they're in big enough trouble it is up here, with surely, without doing that. Yeah, they wouldn't form a coalition, obviously, but they would vote down an independence referendum. Yeah, and they would okay. vote down independence, and that would kill us. Yeah. And, and frankly, I think if we did that and we self-inflicted this damage to the independence movement. I think the independence movement would fragment and break up. Mm. I really worry about that because 
we're on the cusp of achieving everything and to throw it away would just so disappointing. Yeah, yes, indeed. I hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I hope so as well. I mean, it, it does bring up one thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, but the thing about uh, the... Oh, how would you put it? Um, the legitimacy of going for an independence referendum. So if you've got an overall... If SNP have an overall majority, then, yeah, I can understand that. That is a very strong position to be in, to be saying to Westminster, um, we're going to do this one way or another, we're going to do it. But I'm not quite... I'm not... don't quite understand why... I mean, is it so much of a, a weaker position if... They don't have an overall majority um, of seats in in Holyrood, but plus the green seats, there's a definite a definite overall majority for independence and a, an ability to vote things through in Holyrood. I mean, I can see it's a bit weaker, mm -hmm. but is it really such a big mm -hmm. disadvantage? Well, you just have to look at the situation now, because that's where we are at the moment. There is a majority of MSPs in the Scottish Parliament who are independent supporting MSPs. But it means that Westminster can turn around easily and say, you don't have an electoral mandate because we're not in a formal coalition with the Greens. Remember, the Greens have refused to join a coalition with the SNP from way back, right, since 2007. So uh, we are a minority government. And that is quite a weak position to be in politically when you are in, you know, in this constitutional argument. It makes it easy for Boris and, 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 and Lord Snooty and the rest to, <laughs> to turn around, you know, and deny these sort of things. And it makes it much harder for us. But if we get that electoral majority, we real, the power of the people of Scotland behind us, we can say, it was in our referendum. Uh, sorry, it was in our, our mandate. We put to the, the people of Scotland at an election. They said, go for it. They elected us with a majority. We're here. We're demanding this. We're yeah. not asking for a Section 30. We're demanding it. You don't give us it. We, we'll go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you think that would still be the case if when you add the Green vote and the um, SNP vote together, if that's over 50% of the votes cast, still you wouldn't regard that as being having an overall majority for independence? No, because there are all sorts of let-out causes for them. Like, they can say, yeah, but you're not 50% of the electorate. You know, so you haven't got a real mandate. You know, people decide to have nothing to do with it. That's also one of the weaknesses. If you go for a referendum which is not properly established, that then everybody who refuses to take part, boycotts it, even dead people, are counted as votes against. You know, the, the gold standard, as I think everybody accepts, is to get a watertight Section 30-based referendum. The next best option is with an SNP majority government to go ahead with a referendum and say, try taking us to court. Mm. And then, you know, because we've got the 
mandate from the electorate here. They voted us in, right? Try, you will look great, won't you, going against the democratic vote. <laughs> so that's that's the position. That's the strongest position to be in. And we can do that. We can get to that position if we don't pussyfoot around playing games to try and minimise number of unionist MSPs. Don't get sucked into that. Go for independence. I, I I hear what you're saying, Tony, and I share your desire for independence, and it's great to hear, uh, you know, the, the arguments you put forward for the both votes SNP. Just see to go back to the, the issue you touched on, which I think is a key point, and that was that these small parties that have sprung up are are a risk because it's unlikely that they will get enough votes to gain MSPs, but it's possible that they could gain enough votes to, that would take away from potential SNP votes to damage the vote share of the SNP and hence on the list. But here's the thing, looking apart from the mathematical side of it, looking more at the people and the way that people feel and the choices that people are making, do you think that you know, that there's obviously a reason that some of these parties have sprung up, and that a reason that some folk are considering not giving their second vote to the SNP in terms of certain policies and certain legislation that are not particularly popular with certain sections of the electorate. And I just wondered if you think, I don't know if it's a question that you want to get into, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, do you think that the party, the SNP, could be doing more at this very crucial time so soon, you know, before an election? Is there anything they could be doing to stop that drift away? It, it's a really good question. And like many of your listeners, frustrates me what's going on sometimes. You know, to me, though, they're important, but they're sideshows to the big question, you know, the big fish that we've got to fry, which is independence. Because I look at it like this, you know, all the things I want to achieve, getting rid of nuclear weapons, building a fairer society, you know, getting a proper distribution of wealth into our country so that uh, people get the benefit of their 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 work, you know, all the, all that stuff. I'm not going to achieve that without independence, you know, to get true equality. We're not going to get that about independence. To to actually free the, the, the people from the prejudices that are holding groups back, we're not going to get that without independence. We can't even secure our own borders against um, infections. You know, we're, we're hanging on the coattails of an irresponsible buffoon in these circumstances, you know. Um, we can't be a normal country. So I put that right at the top and I say, we have to become a normal country and then we can face all these other things. And I look at this and I say, this is where we want to be. And my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, I want them to live in that society. Have a vision of the society I want them to live in. And we can only get that with independence. 
Hear, hear, Tony. Hear, hear. That's a great place to stop talking to you. I think you, know, <laughs> I don't think you could have summed it up better. I think it's something that we all want. And you, and you reeled off a lot of the things that people are wanting, the real priorities and the things that all of us who want independence are dreaming of, really, at this time. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Yeah. That's a pleasure. Yes. Good. Yeah. And thanks for doing this. You know, every... Every little bit that we do helps us along the path. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. <laughs> yeah, bye. So you're back on IndieLive.radio and you have been listening to an interview with Tony Graham. So while we're on the subject of all things SNP, we've been asked by one of the Glasgow branches, Annie's Land SNP, to do a shout out for an event that they're holding on Zoom tonight and that is the Adoption Night special for their MSP Bill Kid. And um, it's not too late, you can still get a ticket for that. There are some left and it's a good, it'll be a great night hosted by Carol Monaghan, the MP for Glasgow Northwest and there'll be speeches, music, comedy, poetry, guest speaker, Keith Brown, MSP, the deputy leader of the SNP. So if any of you would like to um, support Bill's bid for re-election to the Parliament, the tickets are only a fiver and they're available on Eventbrite and you can find a link to that on Annie's Land SNP's Twitter account or Facebook or just search for it on Eventbrite. So we wish Annie's Land SNP a great night um, tonight. So you're here on Indie Live Radio with Marlene Halliday and Valerie Gold and we're absolutely delighted to talk to our next guest who is a relatively new addition to our team here at Indie Live Radio, Frank McGroarty, also known by his professional um, DJ name as Frankie Boy. Hello Frank. Hello a professional, I like the sound of that. Oh, I'm, I'm, so glad, I'm so glad that's been recorded, fantastic. <laughs> so Frank, you have the most amazing um, colourful career. Um, you've been a ballroom dancer, you've been a Butlins red coat, you're a published author with several books, you're a DJ, you've been a DJ and you still are and you've got a, a great music show on the Indie Life radio so um that's what we'd like i don't i don't really know where to start with you because there's so many things to talk about maybe <laughs> we should start talking about your books yeah um and you've written several books one of which i've bought and i've started but i haven't been able to finish it yet but um it, it, it's your books are more fictional accounts but based on fact would that be correct to well there is, is there are fictional stories but they're mixed with historical fact because this um every time you get an author writing a fictional story very often there is um a factual element to give them a sort of starter for 10 and so so what you've got in these three books is like a fictionalized version of what happened to me so the first one what time does midnight cabaret start was based on um the 1982 season and that's that's when i first started at butlins and so there is a lot of things in there that sort of are very close to home in terms of accuracy it was i mean when i first started it it was it was originally going to be an autobiography and i thought well who's going to write who's going to want to buy an autobiography plus the fact that there was so many gaps when i was filling it in 
So the thing is, I was allowed to be, um, you're allowed to have a wee bit of creative license, you know. Yeah, yeah and, a bit more scope and a bit more freedom. Yeah, and as, as long as it's nothing you can't be sued for, you know, you've got that option, you know. And um, and so, I mean, there's a lot of people doing stories now where it's like fictionalised versions of um, true stories. And um, so that to certain, that's basically what's hap- what happened with me. Um, there's a lot of true stuff in there, but I'm not... The, the one thing I'm not going to say is who, which character's based on what, because they'll, what, they'll, they'll, they'll expect royalties, and I'm not going to do that. And <laughs> um, they, they probably know themselves, Frank. Uh, but I'll, I'll put it this way. It's given their egos a massive boost, put it that way. Um, but the likes of um, when we... likes of the first, the first book, um, as it started off as a, bi- a biography, and then eventually I thought, well, let's... I had the creative light, and I just finished doing my degree uh, at the Open Uni, um, and it was um, I just part of it was to do creative writing. And one of the first things they told you was write what you know. Yeah. And I thought, well, what a better way to start, you know? And um, so that's how it really all started. And the titles are all very relevant to my actual career working at Butlins because they were either questions that were asked at the time, or it was um, statements that were made to us as uh, actual staff members. I mean, that first one, what time does Midnight Cabaret start? We used to get asked that every week. <laughs> every single red coat, no matter what camp you worked at, was always asked that question. <laughs> and we always got the same reply, half past six. But that was, it, 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 it always went over their heads, you know. <laughs> do, you, do you get people, um, you know, who, who were, have their holidays at Butlins back then, do, they get, do you get any people contacting you, having read the books or...? Any feedback? Well, 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 well the th- thing, the th- when we did the th- when we started the books, um, I originally looked at it as a as a, um, a work in progress because the, because my good lady has often referred to me as a literary philistine um, because when I before I did the creative writing course, there was a lot English was not one of my best subjects, and the thing is there was a lot of barriers I had to break down, and the thing was when I I started to write it. I was completely blown away with the response I got in terms of the reviews. Mm. Um, I got, the first book, I got 22 reviews on Amazon and I was not expecting that in the slightest. And the thing is, there are people, we, we have get-togethers all over the UK, um, holiday makers, we're talking ex-members of staff, we get together for big reunions. I mean, we're, we're, we've been trying to get one at the old Craig Tara site. Um, whether it's going to happen or not I don't know um, but we've got a big one happening in Torquay later this year so we're talking ex-members of staff holiday makers and every one of them have all come back to me saying oh it brings back memories I mean that's part that's part of the thing about with these books it's a fictional story but the factual element is, is you get a true insight to what it was like working there um, and also to go on holiday there because the thing about when you were working at a place like Butlins it was the worst paid job in the world <laughs> But it was the greatest job in the world. Really enjoyable and fun. I, I'll put it this way: we were working a minimum sixteen-hour shifts. Wow. A, um, a day. Um, sometimes it went to about one hundred and twenty hours a week. Um, and the thing was, you were up at half past eight in the morning, and you were all the way through to maybe one o'clock at night. And the thing is, if you were involved in a show, um, like with me, it was the Red Coat show, or maybe doing some of the shows, or even Midnight Cabaret. Uh, when we're on duty at the Midnight Cabaret that would take you maybe till 3 o'clock in the morning and the thing was so we would finish our shift at 1 o'clock we'd then have to go over to the, the Gaty Theatre 
to, to rehearse for the Red Coat show and we'd still have to be up for half past eight in the morning. Oh, thank per- Perfectly dressed, mm-hmm. um, you know, abs- uniform spotless, have the permanent smile on. I was going to say, and looking cheery, that would be the... Oh, would, oh yeah. I, I, I mean, the thing, that would be the biggest challenge, wouldn't it? Well, the, th- the thing is, is when when you were walking, uh, working in the camp, you always, when you walk past people, if you didn't walk past people and said hello to them, you were in trouble. Because there were instances where we would walk, so there, were, there were red coats one time, used to walk along the Stuart Ballroom where the entertainment manager would be looking from the ballroom down on, on, the, on the main road. And if they see the red coat not saying hello, it would tell them to go back down the stairs, walk to the far end of the camp and do that walk again. Oh dear. <laughs> so you, you that, sounds, that sounds more like the army. But, well, the thing is, it was very, very disciplined. And the thing is, it had to be. Um, but yeah. the thing is, when when I when I joined Butlins in '82, it was, certainly wasn't because of my personality, because I didn't have one. Um, I joined because I could because I could dance. That was the reason I joined. And a lot of the red coats joined became red coats because they had something that they could basically bring to the table. You know, some people were qualified sports instructors. Other ones were maybe let's say ballroom dancers. For me, it was it was because I did the come dancing before. Um, and uh, that's what basically got me the job and it was because that happened I'm working alongside such amazing characters in that place I mean when I first walked there it was um, Jerry Jerry Griffin Jerry the Tramp I mean he was he was an icon um, and you get likes of um, Big Joe who was a bit, t- bit 20 odd stone used to walk about dressed as a schoolboy <laughs> you know um and he used to sell, sell the badge. And the thing is, Joe, I worked with Joe in 83 and 84. And the thing is, we we, we met up again about 30 odd years later. And um, he had a fantastic singing voice. His, his comic timing was absolutely fantastic. And he was such a major influence on me. Same with Jerry, same with Jerry Griffin. I mean, we actually got together, um, Jerry uh, and also Jimmy Livingston, who, was met, who, was, who basically did the band at the Stuart Ballroom. Uh, we were part of a group of ex-Redcoats entertaining um, the the, sort of the local community uh, groups, um, the resident the residential homes and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we basically put on old-style Redcoat shows, and and I'm working alongside these guys 30 years after when I first started working with them, you know. And it was um, oh, Frank. Can I just interrupt you for a second because I'm interested in what you said there about you know how you 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 got it because you were a dancer but mixing with all these people really brought you out your shell so yeah. were you quite you were only about 18 or you 18, were 18 yeah 18 yeah years old I was thinking when you were saying about you know having to work at night and be up and be cheery in the morning I suppose when you're young you you, you can do that you've got the stamina and the energy to do that haven't you well when I was I mean I, I, energy was never an issue because like when we did the come dance and stuff, you know, we were doing the training. I mean, I was basically, I was, I'm half the man I am now. You know, I was about about nine, about for about five or six stone lighter than what I am now. Um, the energy was never a problem, but <clears throat> but when we were doing the, the actual working at the camp, it was a culture shock for me. Yeah. Because because to quote my good lady, I was sweet and innocent in those days, um, and 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 I used to call myself shy. And but I mean I used to do I, I was I, I had a I came from a performing background but the thing was when it came to the interaction being around major characters that was a big 
shocked him, shocked to the system, something I had to get used to over a period of time. And um, that's that happened when I was working in 82 because, as I said, we were working with some major extroverts. And the likes of when you were talking about the likes of Jerry Griffin, um, he was the compere at the camp. And uh, we used to do a competition at the camp, which a competition you could not run today because of the politically correct world we live in. It was called the Cheerful, Charming and Chubby competition. Yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and the thing was, I'm Mr. Shy, 18-year-old, and um, Jerry was compared, and there was one round where they asked, this, they asked one of the women, who's your favourite f- uh, film star? And so you say, Robert Redford. And, um, and he used to and he said, right, and he, he used to come up, he dragged me on the floor, he would put me in the middle of the, bo- of the, middle of the Stuart Ballroom, three and a half thousand people, watching what's going on and he says to this woman right this is not Frank the Redcoat this is Robert Redford this is your favourite film star what would you do to this favourite film star if you met him and she said um, would you go up and give him a nice big cuddle I mean oh yes and she said what does he look like oh he's lovely and so she says right you've got to walk up nice and sexy to him and give him a big hug and the, the woman didn't know her own strength next thing I know I'm on the floor <laughs> <laughs> and ends up, so it ends up with two other red coats are basically grabbing me by the ankles and pulling me off and this is me mega shy so this is me trying to get this is me getting thrown in the deep end you know that, that'll sound like a real culture shock for a young sweet and innocent 18 year old yep. tell me so Frank did you meet you met your wife in Brooklyn yes. you worked yeah. together yeah it was um, she worked in the kitchens in 82 and it was a bit I, I think we could describe it as a bit of a conspiracy set up because what, during those early days we became very good friends with um, the kitchen staff and a lot of people from other departments because the main thing is when when you look at the books you will see even though it's got a strong red coat theme red coats were not just part of the whole equation of Butlins there were so many other different departments that made Butlins what it was you know it'd be, it'd be wrong for me to suggest otherwise I mean yes we're at the front because we've got the, the, the you know the high profile uniforms and all that but the thing is Butlins couldn't survive without the amusement park, the bar staff, and all this kind of stuff, you know. And um, and and the thing was, um, Wendy was working in the kitchens, and it ended up um, I'm on the dance floor, and somebody comes up to me and says, "I want to dance with Wendy. Are you going to do me a favour? I want to dance with with, with Mary, who was a chalet mate. Do you, can you do me a favour and dance with Wendy?" <laughs> went, okay. So it ends up. When I went over, all the kitchen staff that were sitting beside her all moved over to the opposite side of the table. So she's sitting there on her own, and um, and eventually it was it was it was my first ever slow dance. <laughs> you know that's and the thing was the following year she became a red coat, oh. and uh, we got engaged whilst on duty. Oh, how romantic! I did the whole lot, bended knee, the whole works, um, and it was uh, we were on duty at the train station. See that um, photograph we see on the Indie Live Radio. Yeah, that's um, that was on our anniversary. We were all, we went we went to the train station in our red uniform because that's where we, that's how we got engaged. We were on duty at the train station, and so I got down and bended knee. There was a crowd <laughs> for, formed around us, and um, a and so I got a round of applause and a box of chocolates. That was my first. <laughs> engagement that, present that sounds like you were well past your uh, young shy young man stage then but, well but that, put it this way 82 was a, tra- a transformation 
83, you then started to realize you, you, you were starting to find your, your role, your niches, well, where you wanted to go. Yeah. And so, it was, so when we got to 84, we knew that was going to be the final season. And um, and then we got married the following year. So you were only about nineteen or twenty when you got engaged when you proposed. I we got, I, I, I was proposed. We proposed when I was say, twenty. We knew it was going to happen anyway. And um, the thought in in the same. We just took our time. You know, we just we didn't name the day. We just said right, engaged. Because at Butlins, if you're with somebody for more than a fortnight, people are expecting wedding <laughs> invitations. You know. <laughs> So, um, and that's how your first book that I've started reading, the What Time Does Is the Midnight Company, which I think is a funny title. Um, that's how it starts off, of course. It starts off with a married couple going to a reunion and then having a flashback. Flashback, to, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's a really nice way to start it. So I'm <laughs> I'm getting into it, and but unfortunately, because we're so busy, I haven't had time to um, to finish it yet. But I'm looking forward <laughs> to doing that. So Frank, how how did you how was it that you got in, involved with um, it was, it was Latin American ballroom dancing I think in particular wasn't it is that yeah. it's, it's a wee bit unusual isn't it for a wee lad from Greenock well the thing was my I my parents were products of the jigging at uh, the dance halls back in the day um and I mean, I talk about things like going to the, the you know, my, my dad would maybe see, he'd maybe go to the likes of the local, the local halls, the Cragburn and all that kind of stuff. And um, they joined the local dance school, um, Bob Williamson in Greenock. And when it became known that they were trying to recruit um, dance, uh, a, a, a dance class for the younger element, my brother and I were, how shall I put it, persuaded to go. <laughs> and, um, and the thing was, is the two of us went to it, and um, within about three weeks, we were taking our exams. Um, um, that was, and, and that's how it basically all started. When my, my brother turned sixteen, he joined the Scotland team, the Scotland Latin American Formation Team. Um, when he was sixteen, I kind of stopped the dancing when I was twelve, um, and then I, and I came back to it when I turned sixteen again because they were looking for guys, yeah. and it was. Um, but this, my brother had already done Blackpool. He'd been in the the, the uh, uh, doing things like going to Belgium and competing in European Championships and all that. And uh, when they were looking for guys, he suggested that to me, and I thought to myself, "Well, I fancy some of that myself." Mm-hmm. And um, and it ended up we went, went up to Tiffany's in Glasgow, mm-hmm. and um, and that's how it all started. And it was like the, I was there for about three years, and it was when the team disbanded. It was like six months down the line. That's when the advert for the jo- the but the yeah. the, the, yeah. the job for buttons came up. You know, yeah. But it yeah. was um, when you come from a sort of background when it's like everybody's they love the dance and it was a natural progression. You know. Yeah, yeah. I know my mum and dad used to. Or they, they were from Fife, not um, not the West Coast. But you know, good dancers. And I I used to say to mum, but 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 how did you learn how to do a quick step? And she'd look at me and she'd say, well, you just go, don't you? And you get a decent partner. And if you've got a decent partner, you just pick it up. And I'm going, yeah, OK, I haven't, I've never managed to pick it up that way, but, you know. <laughs> you do it, yeah, exactly. I mean, um, I mean, the likes of the stuff that we did, uh, it was very high energy stuff. You know, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, it's, it, well, the videos of the performances are actually on YouTube um for you know the both both the competitions that yeah, we did wow. um and the the thing was i, I was really in, i became more and more into it because of the high energy 
uh, element of it. And that high energy element kind of sort of took me on forward to Butlins because every night you're sweating like crazy because of the amount of energy you're, you're expanding. And um, that's, that kind of set me in good stead. You know, at least, at least that part did. You know, the personality bit came later. <laughs> and uh, and after the after Butlins, um, you've you were very highly involved in journalism and in radio in particular. I mean, yeah. I noticed that you actually had your own radio show for a Spanish radio station, Radio Nova FM. Yeah. How did that come about? That's really interesting. Well, when originally I. Me, I originally was doing radio shows in Fergusley Park, Paisley, with a very familiar name to Indie Live Radio, by the name of Michael McEwen. Oh, Michael! Yeah. Michael and I go back a long way. He was the babe magnet of the partnership, and um, when when the Fergusley Park radio stopped, him and I ventured onto an online radio station called Hit Music Radio, and it was through there we were getting to work alongside some real high profile. Um, presenters, you know, some guys with Radio 1 experience and all that, it was absolutely amazing and it was through that some of these guys moved on to the Radio Nova uh, shows, uh, station and um, they asked me if I wanted to present it so I was doing a weekend show um, on a Saturday and Sunday and uh, I was basically recording it from home, sending it to them and they would broadcast it live from their studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you weren't actually in Spain then, you were just doing it remotely? Yeah, I was doing it remotely, but the thing, the only problem, the only time I became an issue was somebody actually turned up at the studio wanting to meet me because they were convinced I was a wee short-haired, spiky blonde guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, I had to try and keep the image going. Um, <laughs> um, but... but since no, likes of the hit music radio, I mean, I've been doing um, re- recording remotely. I mean, likes of up until when we did Ferguson Park Radio, me and Mike recorded in the studio. But the thing was, after that, we recorded wherever we could find a space. Yeah. Just to record. I mean, Mike and I used to record our shows sitting in the front seat of my car. So the Ferguson Park Radio was that like something that was like particularly relevant to the folk in the Fiji, I believe it's known. <laughs> I, th- I think that's what it's called, aye. Um, <laughs> but but the, thing, the thing was, the Ferguson Park Radio was, I would say, the roots of the late lunchtime experience. Ah, right, okay. Because that's where me and Mike first developed the concept of it all. We had we were doing stupid out-of-the-wall stunts. Um, we were doing sort of real sort of fun, fun elements on the show and that kind of sort of just continue to develop all and all the time and um, we did try and keep it going when we were doing the online stuff but the thing was Mike the two of us basically went through our our own sort of um, we diverted in our different routes and all that and it became difficult to try and get together to do the shows you know Um, but you know never say never anything's possible I might might, might do something with Maggie in the future you never know because I believe you went through quite a challenging period yourself, Frank, in terms of your health that, uh-huh. that led to um, a publication of an ebook, The Thyroid Diaries. Because, yeah, what it is is um, when I turned 50, um, I discovered a very large lump on the side of my neck, and um, it was, I was just before my 50th birthday, I discovered the large lump on the side of my neck, and I went to get it x rayed, and um, the surgeon at the time said it was very common in middle-aged men, which I took great affront to at the time. And um, and it wasn't until later on a surgeon contacted me and says, right, you've been referred to general surgery. 
and um, they suddenly were starting to do tests and things and they then said it was uh, it was a tumour um, it, it looks it was thyroid cancer and um, which to be honest I kind of um, I, I was okay you know I wasn't getting myself in a panic um, and if, but what threw me off guard a little bit was um, the link to this form of cancer was the Chernobyl disaster oh wow yeah which kind of freaked me out a bit um, and the thing was when you have any health issues my first um, sort of concept is always know your enemy you know because the more inf- if you get the right information at least you understand what you're dealing with and you think is you can be a bit more focused I mean I I knew a lot, there was a number of guys who, former Butlins guys who had cancer, who were very positive in the way their outlook was, you know, likes of saying, you know, I've got it, but it's not got me. I've just got to be saying, let's just get on with it. How, right, this is what it is. How do we deal with it? And so I did research. I looked at the different videos. Um, and because of my journalistic background, I was able to identify the true stuff rather than yeah. the rubbish, the scare yeah. stories. I understand. And it was a major, major boost for me because when I went into these two operations, I was two operations plus I had radium treatment done and uh, I was I was a bit more prepared for it all and this thyroid diaries thing this originally evolved through a blog that I did um I had a I had a blog site and um I kind of sort of um, was writing down what was happening on a day-to-day basis and it seemed to be people were actually being very uh, appreciative of that they thought it was it thought it was a good thing and this was me because the information was very helpful to me. This was me giving something back. Yeah. Um, and I when I so when I did it on the blog, I thought, well, why not just make it as an ebook, and people can download it for free. Um, because the one thing because I, I, I always insisted I wanted to make it available as many people as possible, and it's still going to cost them. Hopefully, it'll be some use to them. And um, it's got some humour in it, but it's also got the sort of um, the testing times. You know, yeah. I mean when I did the radium treatment I had to carry a card with me for three for three months because it became radioactive and I had to carry the card with me in case I set off any alarms oh my goodness and so when I, the day I got released from hospital I had the card in my hand first thing I did was I went to my local supermarket and I kid you not I walked in and out of the entrance and not once did the alarm go off I was so disappointed disappointed <laughs> <laughs> So, and you're fully recovered and well now. Well, I mean, I, I'm fine. I mean, I'm, um, I, I've lost. I lost a lot of weight during the last year, um, but that was me going on a bit of a fitness thing. Um, what they basically do is they don't sign you off. They just got to keep tabs on your your blood levels and all that kind of thing because my th- thyroids have gone. You know, so it's just a case of you've got to keep them. Um, you just keep an eye on the, the the blood levels. Plus, as an added bonus, I get rid of my double chin at the same time, which is great. So that's good to know. And uh, so tell us a little bit about how you ended up with, we're very fortunate and lucky to have you. Um, how, how? What led you to Indie Live Radio? Um, is that through Michael or is it also because you you have a big commitment to independence for Scotland? Well, the Indie Live, the actual getting hooked up with the station um, is Michael. We have to blame. We have to blame Michael for that one. He's a great guy, Michael. <laughs> yeah, very good, Mike. Yeah. I, I recommend whenever you get the chance, look on the video um, the, of the late lunchtime experience, where you'll see Michael McEwen and myself getting our legs waxed for charity. 
as a sight to behold um, but then he was the one that got me involved with the station as far as um, in terms of the cause is concerned I apart from the broadcasting I'm involved I have my own website uh, I have a, a couple of websites one of them is called Planet Across mm-hmm. and one of the things that we did uh, was cover the the first indie life uh, first indie ref um, back in 2014 so I'm actually out and about I'm covering the whole thing you know that and my photographer um, his son is a member of parliament for Renfrewshire North ah is that a Newlands Gavin Newlands aye it's his father his father Gordon him and I have been we've worked together for years oh right um, and so the likes of um, him and I we have the same train of thought when it comes to the politics you know um, and the likes of when we do the planet of course thing we get we, we get regular updates and we try and um, write as positive a thing as much as possible um, when I do the, the lunchtime shows I try and keep that separate because the lunchtime show is an entertainment show mm-hmm. yeah you know and to be honest that's what that's what I focus on trying to be entertaining when we're talking about politics and doing the actual the writing because when I do the reporting stuff um that's where the planet of cause k- kicks in, you know. Great, and but you are a big supporter of Scottish independence. Then. Oh God, I, I, I mean, how? I mean, then when I, I've been to the, some of the fundraisers, I mean, I've been I've been reporting on the conferences and stuff like that, you know, and and a, a certain first minister's got a copy of my first book, so I mean, I cannot complain. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and have you always, even when you were young, is that something you always, or did you come to sort of political awareness later, or was it something that was always there with you? I've always been, I've always had an interest, I've always had an interest in politics when I was, you know, going back to like some of my school days, because when we were in the class, I mean, there was, it was a class full of revolutionaries, you know, they all fancied taking over the world and all that, you know, and... Oh God, I. Um, <laughs> but then, when, when I, as I was growing up, we came from, I would say, a very staunch Labour background, because like my dad worked in the shipyards, and the thing was at the time it was Labour. I mean, the SNP wasn't a, very, I would say, a major force at the time. It was like about four, four or five MPs, and that's probably about it. Yeah. Um, when we moved through to West Lothian, um, we were focusing more on the um, people who actually could do a job for people in the actual um, in, in the area and that's when I started to vote for the SNP and the thing is the more you see the stuff on the TV the hypocrisy of some of them is just unbelievable um, because when my, my journalistic background I know when, when somebody asks them a question I know they're trying to sidestep it so I, I know when somebody's coming out with the brown stuff you know and um, it's always uh, the, the political thing I mean, I've always, you know, I'm always one for accountability. I mean, the thing is, the whole point about Brexit was accountability. Um, so the thing is, that's the way I've looked at it in terms of the independence thing. You know, if somebody makes mistakes, let's make it be our own mistakes. Mm, you, know, uh, you know, I've always, you know, I mean, I do not expect, if they said, right, NDRF2 happens and we get a, and you get a yes for I'm not saying it's going to be plain sailing because it's, it's certainly, there's not going to be anything plain sailing. But the thing is, if you're going to make mistakes, at least you know it's their own mistakes. And if somebody can do a better job, at least you know who's going to get voted in. It's going to be, it's going to be people you know you feel is going to do a better job in period, you know. Yeah. But there were so many. I mean, that was one thing that it, it kind of annoyed me 
when we covered it for the planet of cause was I was picking up so many of the lies that was going on was this in 2014? Aye, all the thing, you know, people turning up at the door saying, oh, you're going to lose your pensions exactly. and all that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember interviewing the, the MP, um, him that's got the, the, the goatee beard that drove the fire engine around the place. Uh, Chris, um, oh, that's uh, terrible. You know, you know who I'm talking about, aye. Yeah, him, I do. Him, him, <laughs> him, that's the one. Um, so, I mean, we, I got a lot of interviews with a lot of the guys involved in the, in the various aspects, and they were telling me all the different. I was hearing all the different stories, and and it was so frustrating to hear, you know, all the and stuff people stuff coming out you knew was rubbish. And to be honest, it's not just a case of persuading. The thing is, you're actually having to fight against, um, uh, you know, the, the propaganda stuff that's going on down south. You know, because like, I one of our one of our friends down down south when she he says. All we ever hear about is independence. That's all they talk about independence. So, well, they don't actually. You know, they're talking about other things that they're doing. You just don't hear it. You know, you're reading the wrong papers. You it's know, employees huh? in Labour that never stop talking about um, independence. By the way, it's Chris Law. Ah, uh, uh, that's the one. I know. Yeah. I know who you mean. He's really tall, and he drove the spirit of independence. That's it. That's it. Yeah, MP. He's a Dundee MP, isn't he? Uh, that's right. Um, now, now the likes of um, I knew that the, the, a lot of the stuff that was getting sent around was li- was lies, and um, and the thing is, you know, as I said, the thing the thing about the the guys down south, they were they were basically getting their information based on what they're getting down south through the papers, you know, the Daily Mails and all that, you know, and I know when I read the papers that how you know it's a p- pile of rubbish, you know, um, and unfortunately the thing is, you've got a you've got to persuade people. Uh, to go over the argument but you've also got to persuade people when it comes to actually knowing this is propaganda because I think it was at the council election um, it was only one side was talking for the council but they talked about independence all the time it was the, yeah that was you'd get you get a flyer through the through the door and it would be from the Scottish Conservatives and it would be full of we're the only people that can stop the SNP. We're the only people that can stop independence. And you think you're going to tell me what policies you've got? But the exactly, exactly, exactly. And the thing, I mean, I think David Taman highlighted that on one of the question time thing yeah. and said it was. I think they only mentioned maybe once. But the thing is, when you look at the other ones, it was about twenty odd times and <laughs> just the one flyer, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's that's how ridiculous it's getting because. It's not just a case of convincing people with the argument. You're going to be getting stuff left, right, and centre. Plus, the thing is, you're getting all the trolls and all that on there as well, which is not helping. That's true. You know, Although, I think Frank. I don't know if you would agree, but the idea of the truth and lies seems to be more and more difficult in in present day politics. It used to be that if people were caught lying, then it was a matter for resignation. But now we have a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom who is a proven liar, who's been sacked by the Tory party, sacked by the Times for telling lies. Yeah. And yet uh, he he was he's thought fit to be the leader of a political party and to be a Prime Minister of the country. And it seems to me that We've seen it in America that the idea now is that you just, if you tell a lie loud enough and often enough, people start believing it, even though logically it can be proved that it's wrong. That that's that's basically the first rule of propaganda. I mean, see yeah. when you're talking when you're talking about going back to say like the pre-war when you were looking at all the newsreels and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, 
they just kept on repeating, repeating the same mantra all the time. And then eventually there was always going to be, you just needed one person to believe it. And that one person became two and so forth and so forth. And that's why you're getting likes of it with social media. There's so much misinformation going along there. People are just looking for the easy way out in terms of when it comes to research and, you know, try to find out more information about something. They don't want to read maybe the papers, their source of information, social media, and a large percentage of social media is not true at all. Yeah, that's you know, true. And I mean, a lot of people never even, you know, they never get past the headline. You know, there's a headline for something, they retweet it or they repost it on, you know, Facebook, but they haven't themselves actually gone in and even and, and, and read it to see what they think um, themselves about its truthfulness. So are you are you optimistic about the next referendum? Well, I think the I think the main train of thought is they will go for a referendum when they when they know they're going to actually win it. You know, I think I think that's the main thing because because it was so they started off on a very low level when it came to the you know with the percentage, yeah. and it wasn't until the latter stages when we had um, they were suddenly creeping in front, yeah. and then that's yeah. when that, that's that's when we had the big Star Wars march up it to was. the. It was oh yeah, that was great. I, I I happened to be in Buchanan Street when that was going on. I couldn't Aye. I couldn't believe it actually. It was just it was just panic. fantastic. Yeah, it was pa- yeah. it was pa- it was panic stations, um, but the thing. The, the other thing is maybe worth looking at is like see when we voted for the, um, the Scottish Parliament in '97, they just missed out on getting the Scottish Parliament. But when they came back to it, it was a resounding um, vote in favour. Yeah. So, it, and the thing is, there's been a lot of st- stuff going on in, in the news in terms of um, <clears throat> all, you know the, all the, the national, you know the, the the other side of the nationalistic argument, you know in terms of. Um, you know the Brexit and all this kind of stuff, and the, and the thing is, the arguments for and against is getting stronger and stronger all the time. You're you're going to start move, you're seeing it slowly moving in the right direction, mm-hmm. you know, and that's and that that's got to be encouraging. That's got to be encouraging. The main thing is, is it's got it's having the plan in place to actually make him say yes. You know that's that's the, that's the big problem. I mean, I know there is other potential um, options available. But the thing is, I can see in the papers down south the amount of stirring that's going on yeah. to try and get all the animosity going and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. You could see it, it, it's, it's it's like the thing in the court where you, um, if somebody's going in defending of a crime, the first thing you want to do is to try and sort of um, degrade the, the the main accuser rather than try to prove the point. You're trying to make them look bad rather than prove yeah. the, the the argument. And I think I'm, I think this is what we're seeing here. Mm. You know, um, but I, I say I did say to to Gordon um, when the first one happened. I says just be ready for the dirty tricks. Yeah, and it's going it's going to be it's going to be the same thing again. I think it'll be worse this time because last time they went into it. Think, I mean, the reason we were given it is because you know support for independence was in the low twenties, so uh, they thought, well, we're you know they've got no chance, but they got a huge fright, and this time. The polls are all. What if we had 21, 22 polls at over fifty percent? Some in the high fifties. So, I, 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 I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I, I think I think there was a, a very good documentary about it on the BBC. 
it was a three-part documentary about the about the, the whole referendum thing. Oh yeah, inside the referendum. Was yeah, it? I thought it was very balanced. I thought it was yeah. a very balanced thing. Yeah. Uh, you what you were talking about the idea of um, um, they thought it was a, it was a it was a giver, you know, uh, and then suddenly they think well it's not as straightforward as what you think it is, and um, and and I think um, I think that was a very balanced argument, but I, th- I mean, obviously May is going to be the key. Yeah, May's going to, yeah. May's going to be the key. Yeah. If they get, you know, if they get, if they get a, a, a strong, if they get a majority, I mean, when the whole reason they set up the parliament was to stop a majority, and the fact that they got a majority, I think, put the frighters on them. Exactly. Because yeah. I mean, the whole the haunt system is really designed to stop one party having an overall majority. That's the whole point. That's the whole. There was yeah, a flaw. I, I mean, that right. might be true. I, I suppose that might be true. But on the other hand, there are positives that come out of having a proportional representation. I'm, no, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not saying it's a bad system. I'm just saying it's designed not to produce an overall majority. They, 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 they thought, I mean, they were doing it because they were trying to give the proportion of people with votes cast. But, yeah. the, thing, but the thing was... What they thought was it was going to, as you say, stop the stop the one party taking you know full control, and so when that happened back a few years ago, that kind of said, oh, there's suddenly a flaw in the argument. They never thought that was going to happen. Yeah, 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 indeed, yeah. But it's very interesting to hear about all. I mean, we we knew you were on the show and we've on the station and we've heard your show, but to hear all the background to all the things that you've done in the past is really interesting, Frank. Um, and I believe in the future, your next project, you're going to be looking at a novel on American football. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, that is correct. What it is, um, I, in my journalistic career, 15 years, I covered American football in Scotland. And um, I'm talking about the sort of the junior British senior leagues and and all that stuff. And because of my dancing background, I also covered the cheerleaders as well. Reported <laughs> on that, that I'm talking about. Um, and story in your signature. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I even tra- I even uh, made, one time I wrote an article where I actually trained with the cheerleaders one one <laughs> night. Um, at one of their sessions, and I came away. I've never been so knackered in my life. <laughs> uh, um, um, but the likes of um. I've I've been I've covered all elements from the like, so the junior game, the senior game, even the professional game with the Claymores. Um, I've and so I've I've got all that experience in there, and it, it I've, I've I've got the story already written. It's just it's going um, to be here in Scotland or in America. It's going to be, the, the the story it's set, the main story it's going to be centred in in Scotland. Right. It's going to be about American football in Scotland. Okay. Um And um, I mean, it's going to start off from America, but the thing is, it's going. I mean, think quiet man. That's probably the best way. But you know, the quiet man. Think, think of that sort of line. Um, John, like the John Wayne film. Aye, aye. You know, aye. So, so basically, the thing is, it'll start off maybe America, but they'll eventually come to sort of focus in Scotland, and it'll be a, it'll be a, even though it's American football, it'll be a Scottish um, theme running through it. And then, because I've covered the game for so long um, at, at the American football, I mean, Scotland was really good at that game. You know, if there was ever a game designed for the Scottish mentality, it was American football. <laughs> I mean, when they first when they when they first when they first started, I mean, they didn't. Some of the teams couldn't afford shoulder pads. They put yeah. they, they actually put rolled up towels underneath <laughs> underneath their shirts. 
but I mean that that it's an actual progression to be honest to go for that. I mean, before I do that 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 one, I'm going to do a short stories one first of all. I mean, I, I think the first thing though is I've got to take a break. I mean, I've spent ages working on that last book. Yeah. You know, um, the I mean, it was the donkeys upstairs. Yes, yes. That, that is. Um, How do you get the donkeys up the stairs? The, the final season. Um, that is a, one. That's an example of one of the questions we used to get asked at the camp because we used to run. There was the donkey derby. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, we used to the donkey derby on the sports field, and um, we were t- uh, we had to announce that what happens if it rains. So we were told it in, in the Stuart Ballroom. And the, and the cast is a question how do you get the donkeys up the stairs <laughs> and sometimes you would get the red coats coming to the side of the stage saying we need the assistance of four strong men to help us we get these donkeys into the ballroom and they actually turn up at the side of the stage <laughs> <laughs> oh you must have had some fun well yeah, and, and yeah. we've had some fun listening to you today Frank and I'm, I'm absolutely a- really enjoying your book so far and I'm hopefully I'll get to the end of the trilogy at some point because I'm enjoying the first one <laughs> so um, but, but that's great that's great to hear thanks very much for that I mean certainly um, I'm, I mean I'm, do, I'm doing I have I have suggested um, doing something with the station um, I, I was basically, I was, I've offered the, the full set as a competition uh, or a couple of people are trying to think through the best way to make it happen so I'm sure they'll be in touch with you uh, once we get it sorted yeah yeah but it's just been it's just been great talking to you Frank I mean look I have to sit, admit here I didn't even know American football was a thing in Scotland I mean far less that anyone could play it professionally uh, you haven't you haven't seen anything Scotland versus England that American football is something else. I, I have to say. Yeah, I bet. We used, to, we used to have the British the British national leagues ran um, the home nations trophy, where Scotland had never lost a single game. <laughs> the, the thing is about American football, it's not a complicated sport to watch, but it's a complicated one to play because complex. Th- that, yeah, that's complex. when it's really complex. I mean, yeah. somebody described it once as um, chess with violence. <laughs> well, um, that'll be a topic for another day, I think. Yeah, uh-huh. absolutely. <laughs> We've touched on a lot of things: ballroom dancing, butlins, um, American football, and close to our hearts, Scottish independence. And we'd just like to thank you very, very much, Frank, for coming on to the show and talking to us today. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Nice, yeah. to, nice to put, nice to put the face to the voices for a change. <laughs> Hopefully we'll talk to you again and yeah. the listeners keep tuned to Indie Live Radio to find out about that competition to win yeah. the trilogy of That's great. Frank. Thanks a lot. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Frank McGroarty and now we've got some more music for you. Uh, both choices from Frank and it fits in with the nostalgic theme of his books. Uh, first track you're going to hear is Do the Hucklebuck. I'm sure some of you out there will remember doing the Hucklebuck. Do the Hucklebuck by um, Coast to Coast, followed by um, Haircut 100 with Fantastic Day. And we hope you are having a fantastic day listening to Indie Live Radio. So here we go, Coast to Coast with Do the Hucklebuck and Haircut 100 with Fantastic So that's us, come to the end of the daytime show. And I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, uh, but just before we go, 
If you're listening in later on this evening, there's a locker room sports roundup at six o'clock, seven o'clock. Steve B's back with more music and musings, followed by the Scottish Album of the Year programme at nine o'clock and Jazz Hour at ten. Saturday morning, we've got the James E Show at ten a.m. Dr. Dave's back at three o'clock and we hope you enjoyed both interviews this morning. Quite different, but two really great guys to chat to. Tony Graham is the most recent person that Val and I have talked to about the Holyrood voting system, Holyrood list voting system, pros and cons of how to use our votes in this very important election that's coming up in May. We've interviewed a range of people with a range of views about how best to use that vote. Um, Please look on our SoundCloud and Podbean on-demand channels where you'll find the other interviews. On the SoundCloud on-demand channel, there's a playlist called Holyrood Voting Intentions. If you go into that, you'll find a lot of very good information from a range of views help you make up your own mind. Our other guest this morning, Frank McGrawty, has very kindly donated a set of his books and we're running a competition. To enter the competition, just go to Indie Live Radio page on Facebook. All you have to do is tell us your three favourite music genre and we'll put you into the competition. I think it runs for a couple of weeks and then we'll put everyone's name into the hat, as it were. And who knows, you might be lucky get a set of Frank's books. One last thing. Next week, uh, 5th of March, Val and I are putting together a daytime show special edition to celebrate International Women's Day. We'll then repeat it again on Monday morning, uh, the 8th of March, which is actual International Women's Day. We've got, oh, I've lost count of the number of contributors we've got. It's certainly a couple of dozen. We've been interviewing them, chatting to them all this week. The next few days, we'll finish doing that, do a wee bit of editing, work out the running order, work out what music to put in, and we think it's going to be a really good programme. Don't miss that then. International Women's Day Special Edition, Friday, the 5th of March. Show.